Volume three, chapter thirteen of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume three, chapter thirteen. There's not a crime but takes its proper change out still in crime, if once rung on the counter of this world. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. There is in Paris, just out of the Rue de Bac, a certain old-fashioned hotel, the name of which I forget, with a little cur in the middle of the rambling old building, and a thin fountain perennially plashing therein, adorned by a few pigeons and feathers on the brink. It had been a very fashionable hotel in the days when Madame Mole held her salon near at hand. But the old order changes. It was superseded now. Why John often went there I don't know. He probably did not know himself, unless it was for the sake of quiet. Anyhow, he and Archie arrived there together that morning, for it is needless to say that, having determined to get Archie at any cost out of London, John had carried his point, as he had done on previous occasions, to the disgust of the sulky young man, who proved anything but a pleasant travelling companion, and who, late in the afternoon, was still invisible behind the white curtains in one of the two little bedrooms that opened out of the sitting-room in which John was walking up and down. He put several questions to Archie respecting the state of his father's health, and that gentleman had assured him he was all right, quite able to look after himself, no need for him to remain with him. "'Of course not,' said John, or you would not have left him. "'But is he able to attend to business?' "'Rather,' said Archie, with the emphasis of ignorance. As long as Archie was in the next room, out of harm's way, John did not want his company. He knew that when he did appear he had to tell him that for eight and twenty years he had lived on Colonel Tempest's substance, and then he must post the letter lying ready-written on the table to Colonel Tempest, only needing the address. After that life was a blank. Archie would rush home, of course. John did not know where he should go, except that it would not be with Archie. Back to Overley? No. And with a sudden choking sensation he realised that he should not see Overley again. He wondered what Mitty was doing at that moment whether the horse-chestnut against the nursery window would ever burst to leap. Here in Paris they were out. He had noticed them as he returned from an interview with Lord Jones. That gentleman had been much pressed for time, but had nevertheless accorded him a quarter of an hour. He was genuinely perturbed by the disclosure the young man made to him, deplored the event as it affected John, but after the first moment was obviously more concerned about the seat and the loss of the Tempest's support than the wreck of John's career. After a decorous interval, Lord Jones had put a few questions to him about Colonel Tempest, his age, political views, etc. John perceived with what intentions these questions were put, and they made it the harder for him to ask the great man to help him to a livelihood. As John spoke and the elder man's eyes sought his watch, John experienced for the first time the truth of the saying that the highest price that can be paid for anything is to have to ask for it. If it had not been for Mitty, he could not have forced himself to do it. "'But, my dear uh, uh, Tempest,' said Lord Jones, "'surely we need not anticipate that uh, your uncle, uh, that Colonel Tempest, will fail to make a suitable provision for one who—' uh, "'He may offer to do so,' replied John. "'But if he did, I, I should not take it. He is not the kind of man for whom it is possible to accept money.' Still under the circumstances, in the extraordinary combination of circumstances, I should advise you to 
My time is so circumscribed. I should certainly advise you to— You see, Tempest, with every feeling of regard for yourself and your father— <coughs> Mr. Tempest, before you, it is difficult for a person situated as I am at the present moment to offer you, on, on the eve of the general election, any position at all adequate to your undeniably great abilities. "'We shall not hear much more of my great abilities now that I am penniless,' said John, with bitterness. "'If I can get any kind of employment by which I can support myself and an old servant, I shall be thankful.' Lord Jones promised to do his best. He felt obliged to add that he could do but little, but he would do what he could. John might rest assured of that. In the meantime, he looked anxiously at the watch on the table. John understood, and took his leave. Lord Jones pressed him warmly by the hand, commended his conduct, once more deplored the turn events had taken, which he should consider as strictly private until they had been publicly announced, and assured him he would keep in him his mind and communicate with him immediately should any vacancy occur that etc., etc. John retraced his steps wearily to the hotel. The loss of his career had stung him yesterday. How to keep Mitty in comfort seemed of far greater importance to today. How to provide a home for her with a little kitchen in it. John wondered whether he and Mitty could live on a hundred a year. He knew a good deal about the ways and means of the working classes, but of how the poor of his own class lived he knew nothing. But even the thought of Mitty could not hold him long. His mind ever went back to die with an agony of despair and rapture. During these three interminable months during which he had not seen her, he pictured her to himself as taking life as usual, wondering perhaps sometimes—yes, certainly wondering—why he did not come. But it had never struck him that she would be unhappy. When he saw her he had suddenly realised that the same emotions which had rent his soul had left their imprint on her face. Could women really love like men? Could die actually, after her own fashion, feel towards him one tithe of the love he felt for her? John recognised with an exultation, which for the moment transfigured as by far the empty desolation of his heart, that the change of it wrought in Di was his own work. Her cheek had grown pale for him, her eyes had wept for him, her very beauty had become dimmed for his sake. "'I shall go mad,' said John, starting to his feet. "'Why is that damned letter still unposted?' Purpose was melting within him. The irrevocable step even now had not been taken. Lord Jones and his own lawyer would say nothing if at the eleventh hour he drew back. He must act finally this instant, or he would never act at all. He went into the next room where Archie was languidly shaving himself in a pink silk peignoir, and obtained from him Colonel Tempest's address. He addressed the letter, and took his hat and stick. "'I will post it myself this instant,' he said to himself. He went quickly downstairs and across the little court, scattering the pigeons. His face looked worn and ravaged in the vivid sunshine. He passed under the archway into the street, and as he did so two well-dressed men came out of a café on the opposite side. Before he had gone many steps one of them crossed the road and raised his hat, holding out a card. Uh, "'Mr. Tempest of Overy, I think,' he said respectfully. John stopped and looked at the man. He did not know him. The decipher's moment had come even before posting the letter. "'Now or never,' whispered Conscience. 
"'My name is Fane,' he said, and passed on. The man fell back at once and rejoined his companion. "'I told you so,' he said. "'That man is a deal too old. He said his name was Fane. "'It's the other one in the tower wig, as I said from the first. "'That ain't real air. It's the wig as alters him.' John posted his letter, saw it slide past the recall, and then walked back to the hotel, found Archie in the sitting-room reading the playbills for the evening, and told him. Perhaps nothing is more characteristic of our fellow-creatures than the manner in which they bear unexpected reverses of fortune. Archie had some of the callousness of feeling for others which accompanies lack of imagination. He had never put himself in the place of others. He was not likely to begin now. He had no intention of hurting John by setting his iron heel on his face. He had no idea people minded being trodden on. And indeed, as John stood by the window with his hands clasped behind his back, he was as indifferent as he appeared to be to anything that Archie, pacing up and down the room with flashing eyes, could say. He had at last closed the iron gates of the irrevocable behind himself, and he was at first too much stunned by the clang even to hear what the excited young man was talking about. Perhaps it was just as well. "'By Jove!' Archie was saying, as John's attention came slowly back. "'To think of the old governor at Overley, poor old chap! He's missed it all his best years, but I hope he'll live to enjoy it yet. I do, indeed!' Archie felt he could afford to be generous. "'And die, John! Dear old die! shall come and queen it at Overley! And she shall have a suitable fortune. I'll make father do the right thing by die!' He won't want to do more than he can help, because she's never been much of a daughter to him. But he shall. And when it's known, she'll marry off quick enough. <laughs> I'll see it gets about. And don't you be downhearted, John. We'll do the right thing by you. You know you never cared for the money when you had it. You're always a bit of a screw, to yourself as well as to others. I will say that for you. But, uh, let me see. You allow me three hundred a year. Don't you wish now it had been four? for you shall have the same if the old gov agrees. And I dare say I shall be a bit freer with a ten-pound note now and then than ever you were to me. There will be no necessity for this reckless generosity, said John, wondering why he did not writhe, as a man might who watches a knife cut into his benumbed limb. It gave him no pain. And you shall have a hunter, continued Archie. By Jove, what hunting I shall have! I shall get the governor to add another wing to the stables, and... I'll keep Quicksilver for you, John. You mustn't turn rusty because the luck has come to us at last. <laughs> you know I knew all along I ought to have been the heir, and I put up with your being there and never raised a dust. I think I can promise I shall not raise a dust, said John dispassionately, watching the knife turn in his flesh. And, and, continued Archie, why, I, I need not marry money now. I could take my pick. New Vista seemed to open at every turn. His weak mouth fell ajar. My word, John, times are changed, and by debts I can pay them off. And run up more, said John. It is an ill wind that blows nobody any good. I don't call it much of an ill wind, said Archie, chuckling. Not much of an ill wind. In spite of himself, John laughed aloud at the naivety of Archie's remark. That it was an ill wind to John had not even crossed his mind. It would cross dies, though, John thought. She would do him justice. But, alas, from the few who will do us justice, we always want so much more, something infinitely greater than justice. 
at least John did. The early table d'hôte dinner broke in on Archie's soliloquy, and, much to John's relief, that favoured young gentleman discovered that a lady of his acquaintance was dancing at one of the theatres that evening, and he determined to go and see her. He could not persuade John to accompany him, even though he offered, with the utmost generosity, to introduce him to her. "'Well, if you won't, you won't,' said Archie, seeing his persuasions did not avail, and much preferring to go by himself. "'If you'd rather sit over the fire in the dumps, that's your affair, not mine. Ta-da! I expect you would have turned in before I'm back. By the way, can you lend me five thickens?' John was on the point of refusing, when he remembered that the actual money he had with him was more Archie's than his. "'Thank ye,' said Archie. "'You part easier than you used to. I expect it'll be the last time I shall borrow of you. Eh, <laughs> John? It'll be the other way about in future.' "'Will it?' said John, as he put back his pocket-book. Archie laughed and went out. "'Oh, it is good to be young and handsome and admired.' The dancers pirouetted in the intense electric light, and the music played on every chord of Archie's light, pleasure-loving soul. And he clapped and applauded with the rest, his pulse leaping high and higher. A sense of triumph possessed him. His one thorn in the flesh was gone for ever. He rode on the top of the wave. He had had all else before, and now the one thing that was lacking to him had come. He was rich, rich, rich! There was much goods laid up for many years of pleasure. Archie touched the zenith. It was very late, or rather it was very early, when he walked home through the deserted streets. A great mental exultation was still upon him, but his body was exhausted, and the cool night air and the silence, after the babble of tongues and the shrieking choruses and the flaring lights of the last few hours, were pleasant to his aching eyes and head. The dawn stretched like a drawn sword behind the city. The Seine lay a long line of winding mist under its many bridges. The ruins of the scorched Tuileries pushed up against the sky. Archie leant a moment on the parapet, and looked down to the Seine below, whispering in its shroud. He took off his hat and pushed back the light curling hair from his forehead, laughing softly to himself. An invisible boat, with a red blur coming downstream, was making a low, continuous warning sound. A hand came suddenly over his shoulder, and was pressed upon his mouth, and at the same instant something exceeding sharp and swift, pointed with death, pierced his back once and again. Archie saw his hat drop over the parapet into the mist. He tried to struggle, but in vain. He was choking. "'It's a dream,' he said. "'I shall wake. I've dreamt it before.' He looked wildly round him. The steadfast dawn was witnessed from afar. There was the boat still passing downstream. There was the city before him with its spars piercing the mist. Was it a dream? The hot blood rushed up into his mouth. The drenched hand released its pressure. "'I shall wake,' he said, and he fell forward on his face. End of Volume 3, Chapter 13